Hello and welcome to the Freight Find Podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist at DAT Freight and Analytics, and today I'm joined by Dr. Terry Esper, Associate Professor of Logistics in the Department of Marketing and Logistics of the Fisher College of Business at The Ohio State University, or should I say The Ohio State University. Now, I always like to have academics on the podcast who have a foot in research as well as in practice, and Terry's a great example of this. He cut his teeth at Hallmark Cards in the late 1990s, helping them develop and then launch Hallmark.com. He earned his MBA and PhD at the Sam Walton College of Business at the University of Arkansas in the early 2000s, and over the years, his research has gone in many different directions, and he's published on a variety of supply chain management topics, twice winning the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals Bernard Lalonde Best Paper Award, as well as being a finalist two other times, which is a great achievement. In our conversation, we focus on work he's done concerning last-mile delivery, specifically the use of crowdsource delivery. He's uncovered some interesting, what I think are counterintuitive findings on the use of crowdsourcing for final delivery. We also touch upon the use of artificial intelligence within the supply chain and the importance of establishing trust in a successful implementation. Following my conversation with Terry, I'll be joined by Dr. Ian Amiyu to discuss the truckload market update. So let's get started. Welcome to Freight Find Podcast, Terry. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. Good to, good to be here. Yeah, this is great. This is great. I, I always like to have other academics on the podcast, uh, especially those that kind of bridge the gap and aren't just pure theory, but actually have a foot in both camps. And so that, that's what I love to do because we usually have pretty good conversations. So let me start with that. Why did you get a PhD? Yeah, I, sometimes I <laughs> sometimes I go back and ask myself that same question. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, so Chris, I started my career actually in research. Uh, I was actually working for a state uh, DOT and was a part of some of the early research that went into substantiating NAFTA. Actually, so interestingly enough, I was working. Uh, in the state of Arkansas, working for the DOT in Arkansas, and was responsible for some of the um, economic development work as we were uh, investigating what would be the impact of more freight transportation, you know, essentially trading right, through right. the United States between Mexico and Canada. And so early on in my career, I mean, I was barely 20. I was actually doing research and I've been exposed to the importance of, you know, undergirding decisions with good research. And so I would say there is where I kind of got the research bug. Um, and that led me through to my professional career when I worked for Hallmark. Now, um, the thing about Hallmark, and I would say that, again, it was what really ushered me into getting a Ph.D. I was responsible for uh, on the team that set up the first um, home fulfillment or dot com order fulfillment operation right. for Hallmark. So the very first order that came in Hallmark.com, you know, we were standing there, received that order and, and, <laughs> and fulfilled that order and took pictures and smiled. And so, you know, I think what's, what's important about that is that we were, this was 98, 99. Right. There was no Amazon. There was no template. There were no exemplars. I mean, we were out there kind of experimenting. And so that notion of experimentation, um, that's where I really got the itch. And so, um, you know, I had so many questions and I'm like, yeah, I need to get a Ph.D. to, to, to See, that, in That's really interesting. I thought that that would make you want to go more entrepreneurial. So you're in the startup and you kind of get that bug, you know, um, yeah. to go into small where you can experiment a lot. But you went into the research. Now you got your MBA first. Yeah. Yeah. Is that mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think, I think, you know, Chris, I think would also get, and you bring up a great point. I think there's also something to be said about academics and, and the fact that many of us have always been academics and we found this place where we could kind of lean into and, and languish in and, and lay in the, the academic environment. I mean, actually the, the backstory, and this is really an interesting story. I was literally with one of our FedEx partners we had gone to a meeting to talk about the dot-com fulfillment mm -hmm. operation for Hallmark. And we were uh, at an airport and it was one of those big mega millions kind of things that was uh, all the rage and everybody was running out to buy tickets for the big uh, lottery. And he asked me, he said, hey, what would you do if you hit this thing? I said, you know what I would do? I'd probably go to some university somewhere and uh, take classes and teach and, you know, <laughs> just and then, and then it hit me like, why do I have to hit the yeah. lotto to do that? Right. Why can't I do 
commit to that. And so all those things kind of came together uh, at the same time. And boom, it was it was I said, hey, it's time for me to go get this Ph.D. When you got your MBA, did you do that knowing you'd stay for a Ph.D.? No. Or did that? Okay. So you decided to get the PhD because the your earning potential was too high as an MBA, and you wanted to lower it a little bit to get the PhD. (laughs) Yeah, I think again, I think it was that experimentation and academic itch. In fact, funny enough, the dean of the business school when I got my MBA, I remember I was walking across the stage, and he's Uh like, "Yeah, we're going to see you again. You you you've got it." I'm like, "I'm like, man, please, are you crazy?" (laughs) I I had the same thing. Is it is it a uh, because I know a lot of people who I got my PhDs with where there was family pressure from this, nah. especially for a lot of international students coming. There's such family pressure to get the PhD. Or you have others where you have a mentor who says, you know what, you should get this and push it through. Were you one of those two? Yeah, I was definitely one of those two. It was definitely, well, well I would say there was a bit of family pressure to it in the mm-hmm. sense that when I was young, you know, being a doctor was the thing, right? I mean, and again, I come from the city of Detroit. And, and to be honest, you know, the, the, the fact is that, you know, not 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 much of my family had the opportunity to get the formal education, particularly beyond high school. And so, you know, I was going to be a doctor one day was the the story. Right. And I, I, I thought about that. I tried it. I was a pre-med major for a while until I got to organic chemistry. And I was like, <laughs> man, this is, this is for the birds. <laughs> so, so needless to say, I found myself in, in business and in logistics. And to be honest, I just thought that my hopes of becoming, quote, a doctor was uh, that that was just something that I gave up when I changed my major in college. Yeah. And then I found my way, of course, to academia. So I would say there was a bit of that family pressure, like this boy is going to be a doctor one day. Right. Yeah. Interesting. But then secondly, there was that mentor effect as well. Right. Realizing yeah. that that uh, there, there was that mentor element that played a big part as well. So it's, it's funny. I've got a family member um, who whose uh, spouse is a surgeon. And I get reminded a lot that he's a real doctor and I'm just doctor. a PhD. It's like, okay, okay. <laughs> you win. You let's, got it. Let's get into the, the meat of some of these things. You've done a lot of research in last mile in a bunch ah. of different areas. Really interesting. Um, what generated your interest in understanding that last mile delivery? Yeah. So to be honest, that was how the Hallmark experience ushered me into the PhD. Hmm. Because we had a lot of debates when we were establishing that first last mile dot com fulfillment operation. You know, one of the debates, believe it or not, Chris, that we had was do people really care about knowing who they should expect when they are getting this package shipped? Do they care about tracking and tracing that package? You know, these are things that we take for granted in the 2023. But I'm talking about 97, 98, 99, when these were new notions that we were grappling with. And so, to be honest, um, that that interest in that last mile fulfillment space, you know, started there. You know, secondly, um, to be honest, it also I was also stimulated to think this way as I started to just gain more interest in marketing. So I never, right. when I did my PhD, I was in one of those doctoral programs that was kind of a hybrid of marketing and supply chain, and so okay. I had a, a strong interest in kind of bridging those two disciplines and really learning how consumer. Uh, issues might play out relative to supply chain. And so I would say that those were kind of the two pillars that really triggered my interest in last mile. And and then third, again, I I came into a PhD in 2000 uh, was when I started my PhD program. This is when, you know, the dot com conversation was all the rage. So to be honest, it was also the topic of the day. Right. It was the hot topic. And so as most PhD students do, I kind of, you know, kind of pulled all that together. Hey, I had a, a hot topic that was the topic of the day that I had some work experience in. Right. And that really kind of allowed me to to uh, to 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 experiment with my interests of of aligning with those scholars that were bridging supply chain, logistics yeah. and marketing. And, and so there we have it. What's interesting, we came in about the same time. I finished mine in, in 96, but I came in from the civil engineering transportation route. Right. And you came in from the marketing side because it seems like there's two kinds of supply chain schools, at least at that time. You were right. either a marketing person who came in and then you kind of hit inventory or you're a civil engineer and you hit transportation. And yep. so yep. it's funny, as I was looking through some of your papers, as I think about last mile, I think about the algorithms and, you know, yeah. all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but you've approached it from a very different perspective, a much more marketing face. And so one of the areas I thought was really interesting is your work on crowdsource delivery, which I thought... Mm was a fluke, but it seems like you found some pretty interesting things. What made you want to go 
and look into the crowdsourcing? So I would say that, you know, the, the beginning of the, those uh, pieces and that series of work, and we're still working on that right now. Right. It actually started when um, one of my former doctoral students, Dr. Ha Ta, she's on faculty at FIU down in Florida. And uh, she and I were having some discussions and we started to, you know, say, hey, we need to reimagine the role of consumers in the marketplace today. You know, we are in a time and in an era where consumers kind of being passive recipients of supply chain outputs, that's changing. We're in an environment now where consumers are being very active, like people out there in the consumer market are playing a role in doing supply chain work, you know, and we're, we're seeing this Uber model starting to emerge where people are picking up packages and dropping off packages. You know, I, I spent some time uh, uh, teaching out in San Francisco and there was actually an app called uh, Sidecar and it was kind of the maybe the, the predecessor to Uber. And it was, you know, and I remember when people were saying, hey, you don't have to take a taxi, you can get a sidecar. And this was before Uber was even uh, uh, even in our uh, in our in our vocabulary. What was interesting is um, I remember someone out in San Francisco saying, hey, a retail store called a sidecar. And instead of getting in it, the person at the retail store put a box in the back seat and said, hey, can you drop this off at our other store on the other side of San Francisco? Because we need to kind of get some of this extra product over there. And it was like all kinds of light bulbs and, and bingo, Kino. Right. I'm like, wow. So now these folks that are, you know, ride, this is a ride share situation. But now these folks are moving product. And that just opened up a wealth of discussions. And again, so it was like people are starting to get into the business of moving product as a side job or the phrase that we often use, you know, the, the ultimate side hustle. Right. And so right. That, that was what that was what intrigued me. And, and, and but to me, it kind of fundamentally changed some of the elements of that last mile exchange. Right. Because oh, if so. you think about it, well, what we saw early on in the use of crowdsource delivery is that we were kind of um, dropping the Uber model into last mile delivery. So, you know, you would get um, a, a name of the person who would be delivering your package and you would be getting uh, their phone number in many cases and even a picture of who that person was. So we started to see this very interesting dynamic where these social factors were starting to roll into last mile delivery. You know, if I get a notification that UPS is delivering or FedEx is delivering, I just know to expect a UPS truck. But now I've gotten a notification that says, hey, Chris is going to be riding uh, through your neighborhood looking for you and delivering a package. And uh, here's his number. And if you know if you need to contact him, you can. Right. That, that yeah. opened up to me a, a lot of layers to last mile exchanges and to delivery uh, exchanges. And, I, and that's what kind of intrigued me to study it. Yeah. Well, this is an interesting point. So let me break that down to the, the shipper's decision to use. Um, crowdsourcing delivery and versus the receiver, the person yeah. receiving it. I would think for the user, let's talk about Walmart, a Target, a restaurant, whatever. If they're going to use this, do they mainly do it to lower costs? Or yeah. is there some other intrinsic value add to the shipper about using crowdsource delivery? Yeah. So initially it was all about cost reduction, right? It was about offering an ability to lower costs and in many ways supplementing a fleet that maybe couldn't uh, you know, reach all the nuances and the nooks and crannies right. of the market, right? So uh, primarily early on, a lot of the shippers were using this as a supplement and as a way to um, to lower costs because it, the crowdsource delivery uh, model is cheaper, right? It has been shown to operate uh, yeah. in a lower cost fashion when we compare it to the traditional fleet model, right? But Terry, is that only is that only because it's being used in certain niche areas? Um, is there any company that use crowdsourcing for all of the last mile delivery or is it mainly yeah. only used to augment? Yeah, there, there are now. I, I think when we when, when we think of the larger retailers, they typically kind of use this high, this uh, kind of incorporation of crowdsourced into various ways of getting product yeah. to the consumer. But but we are seeing that, um, of course, there are some retailers, midsize and particularly a lot of small retailers, especially because of COVID, that are full blown using crowdsourced delivery models. Now, there, there's some benefit even beyond just the cost reduction element, though, because the way these models typically operate is um, 
you know, a pickup and, and a direct delivery, right? So Amazon, I think, became particularly popular for their use of crowdsource delivery because they, you know, they use it for those really fast deliveries. So as opposed to sending out a driver or from a fleet that's going to do these routes and these paths, you know, we, you know, these crowdsource delivery workers pick up and deliver and come back, pick up and deliver. And so it offered this very straightforward and really quick um, mechanism for, for delivery. Um, and, and so I, I think, um, you know, what we're seeing now is the, the benefits of using the model have gone beyond just the ability to supplement volume uh, or to even reduce costs. What we're now seeing is that on the on the recipient side of things, actually consumers tend to appreciate those deliveries more. That's what I read that and I was going to move to that next. That is totally counterintuitive to me. I would rather see a guy in the brown, you know, uniform showing because, you know, he kind of knows his stuff and everything. But you found just the opposite? Yeah, we, we did. So I think wow. that there are some things to be said about just the social the social factors and some of the the what that last mile exchange offers the consumer. You know, again, what we found, for example, is that, um, you know, people tend to appreciate the fact that these work there's there's almost like these delivery workers have sacrificed their own time <laughs> that they have put themselves into a um during COVID, even perhaps a dangerous situation uh, to 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 get product to me, right? So there is not only the fact of the, the utility of getting the product to me at the right time in the right place, but then there's also an element of uh, perceived sacrifice. There's also an element of appreciation for the fact that these delivery workers are, in fact, working a, quote, side job or a, quote, side hustle. Um, And then there's also just the humanity element. For example, we've looked at a lot of review data and gotten a lot of data on consumer sentiment when they receive crowdsourced deliveries. And what what we find is these people are referring to these drivers by name. They make uh, a lot of associations with the discussions that they have. And um, and so I think that there is just also just an element of social connection and an identification with those workers. Yeah, Terry, do you see that differing by the type of product being delivered? Like, is it more for restaurant stuff? It's a different relationship than if I have, I don't know, a bunch of shampoo delivered. Does product have an influence? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. And I think that's where we need to see more of this work. I would say I'll take a step back. I think when we talk about last mile delivery, you know, everyone has gotten onto this notion that, well, you know, everybody wants everything two days or less and everybody wants it for free. Right. You probably have heard this. You may have even said it. Right. Because I know I've said it. That was that's kind of the way we're going. But what we're now finding is that that is not a statement that we could just blanketly apply. There are certain scenarios where maybe those needs for those quick deliveries and therefore maybe a crowdsource solution are more pronounced. We are in my own research, we're now starting to look at product categories and and shopping context. You know, are you buying something because of an emergency need or are you buying something because of a casual need for that product that might actually trigger how you might rate or even maybe perceive those kinds of crowdsource deliveries. So I think in general, and I, I think this is important across the board because yeah, yeah. what we saw during COVID is, or, or during the height of COVID is a lot of consumers saying, hey, you know, actually I've had to rethink whether or not I really need everything so quickly because right. I have now become aware of how important this work is. And, and, and during that time, how, um, um, dangerous this work can be, mm-hmm. especially as we right. saw people putting their health uh, in the balance. And so I, I think we're starting to see maybe a bit of a turn of the corner around this notion that everyone wants everything so fast. I think it depends on product category, why we're shopping. And I think that also has an impact on how we view crowdsourcing. We've had some work up here by uh, my colleague, Dr. Josue Velasquez, who looks at the sustainability effect. Yes. And they had, you know, if you if you position the, the savings by using that, he calls it the big green button. And he did a bunch of studies in Mexico with a large retailer that if people were willing to get slower delivery, if it was turned into terms they understood, like the number of trees that would be saved instead of like tons of carbon. But yeah, so do you see that as is sustainability another piece in that? Or does that not have an effect? 
No, I, it, it definitely does. And in fact, you know, I think that there are a lot of different maybe triggers or buttons that we need to explore in terms of why, when, when is it that consumers are more likely to want those fast deliveries? And are there elements that consumers would think about that might cause them to back away from that notion, right? The sustainability conversation is one. Sure. I've even done some work where we've kind of offered consumer groups incentives, even even in a, a cash incentive. And I know Amazon is experimenting with this. Right. To get consumers to back away from that, you know, I need it now and I need it yesterday. Um, and so I do think that the sustainability conversation is another one of those. And, and again, we're seeing that even become more pronounced as we yeah. just see more and more uh, sustainability conscious consumers out there. Make, makes sense. Makes sense. But it's, there are certain categories like restaurants. You're going to want the food now. I mean, yeah. that's, that's not going away. That's that's one that will always be there. But other things. What about demographics? Do you see a difference between age groups? for this where they have different expectations? Yeah, yeah, we do. And I think that's a that's a you know, we've looked at that a little bit in some of the data over over the years that we've been studying this. Um, and just kind of how last mile, you know, delivery services, you know, operate and and you know, what switches they hit on. You're right. There are some demographic factors that play a role there, um, particularly as it relates to, I'll give you an example. Um, Right now I'm working on a project where we're looking at complaining data. So, you know, we've done a lot of work to investigate, you know, what makes consumers satisfied with delivery services. But we're now looking at some data that explores what makes consumers complain about delivery services. (laughs) And what we're finding, of course, is that there are definitely some demographics there where maybe, you know, some of the tolerance for maybe some of the delivery and operational hiccups, they don't, it's not equal, right? We see, you know, maybe an older consumer being much more, uh, less tolerant for some of those really? operational hiccups. Yeah, yeah. I would have guessed so, the other way. I would have yeah. guessed the other way that that older you tend to be, okay, I understand these things. Yeah. And the younger is more demanding. No, interesting. Yeah, so we do see, and, and, and we're, we're, we're investigating a special type of, of uh, complaining behavior. So when you really kind of, you know, march complaints to a big third party agency with the intent to get that third party agency to intervene. So I will say maybe that kind of complaining behavior um, it may not be the same as like someone who takes to Twitter and complains. I think there's where we probably will see a much younger demographic emerge. But what we're looking at is people who get so fed up with delivery problems that they march into a third-party agency and say, hey, I want to report this company for their practices. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's, it's an interesting thing. Since we both teach and you always get student reviews, you uh, always get these weird ones. You know, you get good ones, you get whatever <laughs> ones, but you always get something that's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Where they come in. So you get a pretty, pretty thick skin uh, when yeah. it comes to looking at reviews and feedback. And so I did a bunch of online courses and we get some of the weirdest comments back and it's like i don't know where you're coming from like, yeah hey, yeah it's an opinion i tell you what once i was on a serious xm radio show and the uh the host said hey you know we went and looked on uh the website where the reviews go i won't even say it <laughs> with this online portal that allows for students to uh to look to to rate you and uh, i was like oh wow here we go right <laughs> i just immediately kind of <laughs> prepared for the words because again you you know as you know and, and I think we even maybe see it playing out in some of this complaining data, you know, that that moment of truth when it comes to, you know, um, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of emotion uh, around, uh, you know, the, even the willingness to go onto a platform and to to rate someone or to complain. And so um, and, and that's part of what we wanted to explore in this research. You know, when we think and, and one of the things, Chris, that I think is really intriguing about this research on the complaining, the, the complaining behavior is because a lot of the complaining behavior happens before the delivery. Right. And hmm. this is important. This is important because that's something that when it comes to the research on that last mile space and just the role of delivery services, to be honest, it's kind of a black box, right? We know, you know, how to um, design and how to offer delivery services to intrigue or to attract uh, customers or consumers to buy. And we do know that that delivery model, you know, and delivery services and whether it's free or not, all those things, you know, uh, lead to more willingness to buy, right? So if I'm a retailer, if I'm a retailer, I know how to offer those services to ensure that we land those customers. Then we know how the delivery service itself and the delivery exchange, I should say, affects consumers, right? If it was on time and there was no damage. And then, of course, 
the work that I've done around crowdsourcing even adds maybe another layer to that to show how maybe a crowdsource delivery might offer some unique uh, value to a consumer during that exchange. But the in-between, during the lead yeah. time, there's maybe been a little bit of work that's looked at how consumers track packages as a way of maybe exploring the behavior of consumers during that lead time. But we don't really know a lot about that. And so what I'm intrigued in with is kind of some of the emotional responses that consumers exhibit during that lead time and, and kind of what are some of the things that are happening there. And so we're looking at this complaining piece, right? Because we do yeah. see people that are making complaints even before they get the deliveries. And, um, and I think that's an intriguing part of this work. Is that, is that um, because it, the deliveries, uh, the expectation was set too high? They expected two day and after the second day they start complaining? Is it lead time not matching expectations? Yeah, that's, that's a very strong theme within that data, right? Is, you know, I was promised this, but I got that. Or I was promised yeah. this. And from what I can tell, that's not going to be met, right? right. And so, right. Um, but I think that also indicates that for, and again, it could be product type, but just the ways in which the modern consumer is really tethered to these deliveries and yeah. really thinking about them, conscious about them and actively engaging in uh, um, um, evaluating, you know, each and every delivery seemingly. Um, and so there, there's some interesting nuance there. I would also say another, you know, another big theme um, when it comes to, to that uh, complaining. And this was a, I, I, let me not say a big theme, but I think it's one that is really interesting. You know, we have now found that there are these consumers who know kind of where they're like, okay, so when you route my package from distribution center A, you know, there's always some kind of damage or the delivery is always late. But if you deliver or you route through this distribution center, things go well, right? So I can see that this delivery has been routed through distribution center A. And um, and so I'm already expecting that there's going to be some problem with that really? particular encounter. Yeah. I, I'm shocked. Is this a is this a big percentage? Is this a small minority or is it? No, it, it's a small percentage. So I, I do need to back away from this notion that it's big. But I think it's, it, to me, it's big that it even showed, <laughs> showed right. up, right? Because what this is showing is that there are some folks out there who are very savvy about networks and, you know, uh, uh, the ways in which, you know, packages are routed and the carriers that are being utilized for those deliveries and the DCs that are dispatching those orders. I mean, it's very interesting to me when, when we think about it. Wow. And this is data using a very, you know, uh, this is data centered on a very large retailer, a very large online retailer. So they've got multiple facilities. And so it's very intriguing to see that there are consumers out there that are knowledgeable about that retailer's network. And they have already started to develop perceptual um, expectations based on their knowledge of where their packages are being routed from. And that's, the, 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 yeah, that's fascinating. Is it, it? I imagine dealing with complaints all day isn't isn't it depressing? I mean, just <laughs> yeah. everything's a bad story, right? And everything, or do you find some that are just funny? Yeah, I mean, some of them are funny. Again, I think we also see that there are. So one of the very interesting themes that we see coming out of this, and we're still working through this data, is, um, you know, so funny enough, there are a lot of deliveries that a, a lot of complaints that deal with people's mothers. So that is a very <laughs> intriguing thing. <laughs> and what we find, Chris, it's like not only is this delivery showing up that it's going to be late, but this was something for my mother. Right. So there is this very strong theme of when someone is purchasing something for their mother, that we see this kind of this narrative there that maybe that causes folks to maybe complain a bit more, which is interesting. It, it just gives us more understanding of. First of all, you know, how significant these delivery services can be. But secondly, just some of the different layers through which consumers think about the value of these services. And again, what this shows is in the context of purchasing gifts for other people and especially for someone's mother, we don't want to get this wrong. <laughs> do, you think, do you think it's really coming for their mother or are they just playing the mother card? Because they think that's going to get a better, better response. Well, or they yeah, ordered, I don't know. They were so late in ordering the thing that now they're, they're blaming <laughs> the, the retailer instead of yeah, the, yeah, so you, yeah. Really you get, yeah, you you could you might be onto something there, but but I think we, we saw it in, you know emerge quite a bit 
And to the point that that it, it, it seemingly was convincing that, hey, there's something there about people purchasing products for their mother. Maybe they're just but more not their dad. Them. Dad can wait. Dad doesn't yeah, dad can wait. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. There's yeah. one other aspect about crowdsourcing delivery that, you, that you've done research on that I was fascinating on, and that's the idea of tipping. Yeah. So yes. you found yeah. the idea, is it is the idea if you allow tipping or how much the tipping, how does that impact, uh, impact the uh, relationship? Yeah. So, so that has become kind of one of those really hot and debated topics. You know, uh, early on, a lot of the crowdsource delivery models did not allow for tipping, right? So, that, so adding some kind of gratuity was not really even right. a part of the exchange. And then we started to see some of them kind of flip on this feature where, you know, consumers could offer um, a tip. Now, it became pretty debated because there was at least one of these platforms that would require the customer to um, commit to a tip on the front end. And one of the issues with crowdsourcing, of course, is that these are uh, deliveries that a driver can say, nope, I don't want to take that one. Yeah, I'll take that one. No, I don't want to take that one. Right. So when you use crowdsource delivery, you're actually kind of at the mercy of these drivers to determine whether or not this is a delivery they want to take or accept. And so what we started to see was this notion of tip baiting. Right. Where I could say I'm going to give Chris a ten dollar tip if he if he picks up this delivery, then you make the delivery. Then I can go in and say, nah, I'm going to cut it down to two bucks. Right. So really? that behavior, that behavior started to emerge in the in the marketplace where we started to see this tip baiting where consumers learned, hey, you, 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 you there's a likelihood that you, your delivery will get picked up and made if you offer a big tip on the front end. But then you can go in and change it on the back end. Wow. Yeah. So that opened up a lot of conversation about this notion of tip baiting. So that's actually a real phenomenon that's out there. But it also but it also started this discussion around the impact or the really the significance of the tipping feature and offering tips. And so when we did this research, we for the first time when we start in my research on this whole notion, I backed away from the consumer angle and started to look at the driver side of the equation. Right, right. And what we saw there were uh, I, I was blown away with how savvy drivers are relative to the tip and what role that played. And and because, you know, a, a lot one of the issues with this crowdsource delivery work, you know, they, they don't have gas cards that they can use uh, <laughs> from the business. Right. So they have to kind of factor in what's a break even threshold for me to accept this delivery. And I was very impressed with just how knowledgeable a lot of these drivers are. I mean, some had done really in-depth analyses on, you know, if, if, if I don't get this amount of a tip and it's this uh, many miles, this is a, a delivery I don't take because I won't be able to make anything off of it. Right. So there are some very, very savvy crowdsource drivers out there. And, and so that tip, feature started to play a significant role. And now, I mean, you even see it in the news, you know, there are, you know, the amounts of complaints that people offer. And now we're talking driver complaints. Like if you don't right. offer, okay. Tip, okay. Okay. they're going to, they're going to blast you. Right That's on. a question I was going to ask. Like when you go to a restaurant in the United States, you're expected to tip. It's, I mean, if you don't tip, then they assume you're German, right? <laughs> you just, uh, you have to tip. <laughs> right. Is that expectation there in deliveries now? It has gotten there. That's the part. So it has gotten there and it is significant, especially um, the crowdsource drivers. I mean, they I mean, honestly, they to me, it seems as if they focus in on that tipping element more than the cost that they will get paid from the platform to do the crowdsource work. Let me ask a question about that, though, because if I'm receiving this, I don't know if I'm going to be delivered by UPS or crowdsource, do I? If I'm the receiver, will I know that ahead of time? For Uber Eats or something like that, it's different. But yeah. for anything else, do I know? Can I pick? Do they have any retailers where you, I, hey, I want to be delivered by crowdsource? Yeah, that's a good question. And there are. In fact, I mean, that's what some of our research has started to even maybe stimulate conversations around because there is maybe some degree of a, of a benefit that consumers perceive from offering that option. And so we did a study where we, we had that as an option. And, uh, you know, we did see where, you know, consumers were saying, yeah, I, I would prefer that model and again i think because it it it, it uh contributes to more of a what what, what uh, you know considered valuable and more often than not uh chris those uh, those crowdsource options are cheaper 
And so there is kind of a cascading effect to the shipping costs maybe being cheaper. And secondly, they're often quicker because of the delivery model uh, that is often used with crowdsourcing. Yeah. So, it, you know, there it was one could say, well, it's not that they're consciously choosing crowdsourcing as they're consciously choosing the model that allows or, or that aligns with what crowdsourcing offers. Right? Got it. Got it. But then tipping is going to be that gap between, you know, delivered by professional delivery and crowdsource is going to the, the tip yeah. kind of it doesn't wipe it out, but it can. That's interesting. What's intriguing about this too, Chris, if you think about it from the from the from the retailer perspective, that that delivery service and, and actually the, the the pay to the delivery worker, I mean, you're kind of you're kind of resting that on the um, you kind of you know shifting that responsibility over to the consumer when you use that crowdsource model, right? I mean, I'm giving you control over whether or not my drivers will fulfill orders and pick up deliveries. And it's based on whether or not you are going to be willing to tip them. I mean, I can pay them, but your tip is going to be a significant part of whether or not they choose that delivery. That's a lot of responsibility to shift over. You know, I haven't done too much analysis on tipping, but a lot of times you tip if you're going to have repeating business, right? Because you're yeah. tipping, you're paying it forward. Like yeah. when, when my wife and I go out to any other bar, we know the bartender will always tip because it's the next time your service. You're rewarding for what they did, but you're really kind of going forward. Do you see that where drivers kind of get customers and they, they use them repeatedly? Or is that, it is, I've never had the same deliver twice. I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know they, how that works. Yeah, there, there are some of those models and a lot of it, you know, really did kind of, um, kind of start to emerge. There, there's a company out of New York, um, Zipments, I think was the name of it. Uh, I don't even, I, I haven't kept up with them, but I know they were really core about highlighting their, so their drivers actually had, or, or, or their delivery workers actually had almost something like a Facebook page where they could actually wow. tell you, say, hey, you know, I, I, I love pizza and my hobbies are skateboarding. And, and I, <laughs> I, I was very intrigued by that though, right? Because what was happening was, you know, the, the notion was that delivery workers are people. Right. Um, and that these are people who have lives, who have families. And I think what was happening there and I, it's what has intrigued me about the crowdsourcing model yeah. is that it has really uh, not only built on the need for delivery services, that's kind of the utility of it all. But it's also starting to play into uh, the humanity, the social connections, the social identification that these are people and i think this is why the tipping feature has become very pronounced because hmm. typically and what i can what i can ass assume based on what i've studied on this people see the typical ups fedex worker as you know a worker right uh, uh, um, um an employee of a big corporation right you they see the crowdsource delivery worker as an individual that's out here trying to make it in this world and who has taken on a delivery job to make ends meet. I mean, this is the narrative, right? This is the narrative. Huh. And and so because of that, and especially because of the last few years where if it were not for these crowdsourced delivery workers, we may not have been able to have access to the things that we need to live our lives. I'm going to tip this person because they have put themselves out into traffic and have traveled all this way to get me this delivery uh, or, or to this product that I just ordered on, say, an Amazon. Yeah, that that yeah. that is a very compelling under under uh, that, that's what's operating underneath that whole tipping mechanism. It's a humanity and a social identification era. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Let me let me totally switch topics because there's another area you've been focusing on that I find really interesting. And that's artificial intelligence. And you ah, have a yeah. recent article where you wrote about it. The title is In Artificial Intelligence We Trust a qualitative investigation of AI technology acceptance. So tell us a little bit about what was your hypothesis going in and what insights have come out of this? What, what drew you to this line of research? So there's been a lot of discussion about AI. And uh, I will say this was uh, this uh, actually this whole line of work started with one of uh, one of our doctoral students at Ohio State who, you know, he's a techie. You know, he is a techie. <laughs> he's a big techie. And, you know, as I started to think about AI and we started to kind of go back and forth on this, you know, what we started to to really kind of hover in on as a, a potential area that kind of overlapped with both of us. I mean, I was doing this crowdsourcing work and, and funny right. enough, as an aside, Chris, I'll just throw this in. We actually do have some work that looks at um, 
kind of AI use in the crowd in the crowdsource delivery space because that's really? where there's a lot. Of, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, these companies have these algorithms that you know tell you where to go and how to you know how to deliver and, and route you on which way to go. And what we're finding is that crowdsource drivers are much more likely to circumnavigate those AIs. It's what we call algorithm aversion, right? Being you know kind of averting. The, yeah. averting the, the algorithmic technologies. So, so, so he and I started to talk about AI and, um, you know, what we, what we really got passionate about together is kind of the human side of AI and, and really infusing AI technologies into our operations and, and, you know, how that works. The, the technology is there and the business case and, and the, 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 the need for the technology that, 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 that story is told over and over again. And what we saw, especially coming out of the the, the pandemic uh, shutdown, were the number of companies that said, hey, you know, we're investing in more technology to undergird our supply chains, right? I mean, we saw that in the big reports that came out over the last few years. Technology investments are through the roof, and AI is a big part of that. But what we started to in, in explore is the human side of this, right? So what happens when you infuse a, AI <laughs> uh, uh, technologies and into your supply chain decision-making environment. How does that impact the people that have been there all that time? Right. right. And, and, and how do we effectively infuse the AI technology in and alongside uh, human decision-making, uh, decision-makers, um, human actors? And so what we explored was kind of a roll-in of AI with the, uh, the, 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 the human uh, element of supply chains. But did you find that the hurdles for implementation were different than implementing operations research, decision support systems, which have been around for 20, 30 years? Because like having that brought in, yeah. the human has to interface with that. Is AI different? Does that have different challenges? Yeah, seemingly it is. I think that there's a lot of narrative there that companies are going to have to really grapple with. Number one, there has just always been this kind of fear of artificial intelligence technologies. And that has been something that we as a society have grappled with for years. And this is why we titled the paper In AI We Trust, because what we found is that one of the biggest um, elements of effectively implementing AI technologies is in establishing the trustworthiness of those technologies, getting folks within organizations to actually trust that this is not a technology that is out here to replace you, to take your job, and that there's not this looming threat of the big AI technology that's going to come in and just overtake everything, right? So so um, th what we found out of this paper is that so much of the literature, so much of the experiences of people who have been on the front line of AI implementation, so much of that has built on this notion of establishing that AI is trustworthy. Yeah. So it's not just about the investment in the technology from a, you know, from an investment and from an ROI perspective, but it's also yeah. amongst the, the workers and, and amongst people. And especially when those AIs are used in more frontline operations, you've got to establish that these technologies are technologies that people can trust. And, and I think that's where some of the human elements really come to bear. Yeah, because we've done I did, did work back when I was in software in the uh, 90s where you'd have dispatch systems where it's making recommendations for what driver to assign to a load. And we found that if you had a dispatcher that accepted 100%, they were, something was wrong because they were just being lazy. And if they accepted like less than 50%, then they weren't letting the, the machine do its business. So there seemed to be a sweet spot. Do you see the yeah. same kind of thing here with AI? Yeah, I would assume so. I personally haven't investigated that, but we do see, um, and again, as I was alluding to our doc student, part of his dissertation is around this notion of what's called algorithm aversion. And just really looking at how algorithmic technologies are particularly um, ripe for people to circumnavigate and to operate around and because they don't trust them, right? Or, and especially when these, when these um, technologies have so much computing power that they are viewed as, you know, kind of infallible and but yet we have to. But but if something goes wrong, I'm going to be the person that's going to be responsible for that. Right. I can't point to the AI and say, hey, it was it was him. <laughs> right. Um, and, and so um, which interestingly enough, as an aside, one of the ways to to get uh, uh, folks to trust the technology is to make it a him or her. Really? To give it a name, to give it a, yeah, yeah kind of this uh, kind of projecting some degree of humanity onto the technology. You give your AI pronouns. <laughs> yeah, pronouns. Absolutely. Not to mention a name, right? Do you find that it's more female or male or have you found who, who's more trustworthy? 
Well, I, I, I have not, but I will say that you mentioned that. I mean, I think a lot of the AIs that I, that have been kind of given these human qualities or, or these human interfaces, I mean, a lot of them are uh, women. Yeah. You know, I think of, you know, we think of Siri and, and yeah. Alexa and all the other things, right? I mean, it's definitely um, a part of what we see emerging. But I think a lot of that, if we think about it, is, again, trying to, you know, even if it's not even conscious, Sure, it is sure. trying to create some degree of trustworthiness with this technology. That's interesting. Even the voices that are utilized are all yeah. attempting to kind of create some trustworthiness element. And, and, and the last thing here, which I think is interesting, one of the things that he and I talked about when we started this work was, you know, kind of the onboarding and the socializing of an AI, similar to what you would do if you were onboarding or socializing a new employee. Yeah, sure. because this is a technology that's going to work right alongside uh, people. And so, um, you know, that's kind of where we're taking some of these AI discussions. I admit I am not a techie and I'm not particularly interested in getting into the, the nuts and bolts of, of AI technology. But I'm more intrigued by what this means for the supply chain workforce, the supply chain work environment. And as an educator on the front line of the future of supply chain talent, yeah. I'm intrigued by what this is going to mean for the way that my future students are going to have to go to work. Right. Absolutely. And what is it? Who are they? Who or what or, or who will they be working with? And, and is that who perhaps going to be an AI with the name Sarah, for example? You know, no, that's that's fascinating. And because I think if you have a, a male voice, you think back to the movie 2001, you know, hello, Dave, oh. <laughs> you know, right? it doesn't there. But it's all even Star Trek had the women's voice and everything. It's really interesting yeah. to see how that uh how that goes out. I turned my um, Siri has an Australian accent for some reason. I don't know why, but I find yeah. that more trustworthy. Yeah, we, we've experimented with it at home. My wife is she's over that committee. But, you know, our, we've had, you know, the British uh, uh, accent. And yeah, we, we've experimented with several of them. And, and it's, it, it, you know, there, there's something to be said about that. It, it, it does have a, a, an effect. Yeah. 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 Well, Terry, this has been great. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Thank you. This has been great. I appreciate the opportunity and I'm such a, a big fan of yours. And I will say just as an aside, uh, last year, whatever you did at CSCMP, I was not in the room, <laughs> but I mean, I heard it from so many angles. Folks, Chris Cap, this guy just nailed wow. this talk. I'll send a check to you after the after we record. <laughs> no, it was a phenomenal talk. I mean, I did, of course, get a chance to go back and get the snippets. And thank you for the work that you've done in, in just serving this community of ours. And again, for also being uh, one of us who you know, we're academics and we've we've just geeked out on all kinds of academic research. But we also make sure that we're doing work Absolutely. Um, that, that keeps us rooted in what's happening in industry and being able to offer something of value to practitioners. I think that's very important. It's an applied science. I, I find it amazing. And I see this a lot where you probably see with PhDs coming into interview or postdocs, they solve this problem, which has no bearing to reality. They've you know made assumptions. So it's this nice little mathematical model, but it has no bearing on anything that will ever happen in practice. So yeah. it's good to have talked to another academic who has a foot in both, both fields. So there thanks again. I appreciate it. And everyone, please stay tuned to hear the market update with Dr. Enam Yu. Welcome to the Over the Road Truckload Market Update for March 9th, 2023. In today's market update, we'll discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. Let's start with dry van. Active rates are up half a percent, spot rates up 1%, replacement rates negative 10%. This means the new contract rates are about 10% below the rates being replaced. On the temp control side, active rates are down half a percent, spot rates flat, and replacement rates negative 6%. In a modal, active rates are up 1%, spot rates down 2%, and replacement rates negative 2%. Finally, on the flatbed, active rates are flat, spot rates up half a percent, and replacement rates negative 2%. All right, so we're still continuing that negative trend as the market corrects, right? Where replacement rates are negative across the board. Are they getting smaller? Increases in negative rates, or are they staying about the same? What's happening, Enam? 
Yeah, from the, the replacement rates perspective, we are seeing the numbers are dropping now. We were in the mid-teens uh, on the negative side. Now we are getting to the low double-digit, uh, high single-digit marks, uh, especially for temp control and dry van. So I, it, it all pointing towards things are flattening out. Yeah, and it looks like spot rates are not uh, dropping as much as they were. They're kind of bouncing around. Yes, yes. Is that so, further evidence, you think, of that the market might be bottoming out or starting to, to turn slightly? What do you think? Yeah, I think so, too. I think especially the spot has been bouncing around since the beginning of the year. Uh, so it's it all pointing towards, uh, you know, potential of bottoming out. But the market's still inverted for temp control and for drive in, right? So spot is still below contract rates. How big is that gap now? Is that increasing, decreasing or staying about the same? For this update, it has reduced. Uh, it's about thirty-one cents on the on the uh, van side and twenty-three cents on the reefer. It's been quite steady. The gap has been up to until last update, but I, we do see a slight drop. Yeah, and then the last question: fuel, oh, still slightly good news, right? How's that affecting things? Yeah, I think you know I had to go back and look. I think it's almost we passed the one-year anniversary of uh, Putin going into Ukraine. So actually now we are uh, year over year, we are about 57 cents below what, what it was uh, when the spike happened. So overall, shippers, it's, it's, uh, it's getting better for the shippers. Um, about, it's about 26 cents drop month over month compared to um, February, uh, early February. For, free, for fuel surcharge. Surcharge. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... Good news still for shippers, but, you know, keep your eyes out on the horizon, right? The market will turn at some point, whether a recession comes or not. This quarter, next quarter, in Q3, the market will probably turn, and we'll see when that'll happen, though. Any any last words, Enam? Any last thoughts on the market? No, I think the, the main thing for the shippers is this may be, you know, we may be getting to a place where last chance for the shippers to kind of get, get all the things tied up. Um, you know, because it might be it might be turning soon in the next quarter or two. Got it. All right. Thanks, Enam. Appreciate it. This concludes the truckload market update. Thanks. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Freight Find. The Freight Find podcast is hosted by Dr. Enam Ayub and myself, Chris Kaplis, and is produced and edited by DATIQ. For more information or to hear previous episodes, please visit our website at dat.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to The Freight Find wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on The Freight Find or suggestions for what you'd like to hear in the future, send an email to me at chris.capless at dat.com. Finally, from all of us at The Freight Find, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. 